Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Thank you, Peart family. Thank you, Christy Hanneman. Where'd you go? All right, thank you. It's not easy getting people up here in front of everyone else, in front of the cameras. Uh, worship team. Joel, Sarah, Beth, and Owen, it's your birthday today. You share the birthday with a very great man, my son-in-law, Taylor. So two birthdays that I know of. We're not here to celebrate everyone's birthday, but man, that's really special. And to serve the Lord on your birthday. So thank you for doing that. Journey Church, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. And those of you who are with us online, glad you could join us. Listen, it was Friday morning of this past week, only two days ago, that I received word that the Supreme Court of the United States of America officially struck down Roe v. Wade, making abortion on demand no longer a federally protected, quote-unquote, right. Before we clap too much, I also want to acknowledge that in this congregation, in here right now, statistically speaking, one in three have participated in this sin. You may have been a victim. It may have been a boyfriend, a husband, or your father or mother. And you have been carrying the guilt and shame of that. Maybe it was something that you decided would just be convenient. No one forced you or pressured you. Perhaps you were that boyfriend or that husband or that parent. And there are two kinds of individuals that have participated in the sin of abortion. They are the repentant repentant ones, and there are, there are the hardened ones, and I want to just say something really quickly to, to each of you. If you believe that this is a good thing or that you can justify that, man, I am so glad that you are here with us today, and uh, on behalf of me and Tyler, the Board of Elders, we would love to hear from you and sit with you. We would love to talk with you and reason together. I would tell you that you are out of sync with Jesus in the scriptures and 2,000 years of Christian orthodoxy and teaching, and beyond that, ancient Judaism as well. For those of you who are repentant, and it's something of shame, I want to just let you know, Jesus loves you. You have not committed an unforgivable sin. And that this morning, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. So I just wanted to get that in there so you know as I even angle into this thing in our sermon for today that I just know you're here and I love you. But I will say this, recognizing that the overturning of this 49-year-old statute is not going to end abortion. In fact, in many states, abortion will increase. It will go up. It's just turning the decision over. And guess what? There are 50 experiments being run in the United States of America. But I do believe it said something very, very important. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. When I heard the news Friday morning and considered the meaning of the decision, I was shocked and surprised at my emotional response. 
See, my daughter Holly walked through and mentioned it. I knew that it was coming down the pipe eventually, and I had no reaction while she was in the room. But when I stopped to consider 49 years of this, I went to pieces emotionally. I had no idea that I cared on a visceral level so much. Theologically, absolutely yes, but I was shocked at my response. I put my face in my hands, and I started to shake uncontrollably. And it's in the midst of this emotional outburst that I, I was reflecting on uh, the scriptures that we're studying today, and, I, and I, I thought of this portion of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it in, as it is in heaven. And I just, I went to pieces. Went to pieces. I never thought I would see the day. And I was overwhelmed, not only with joy, but also reminded of 63 million people who are not here because of the last 49 years here in the United States of America. And so it was with joy and sorrow that I went to pieces. And it was in the midst of that moment that I recognized that I was living at least one small nuance of today's scripture. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, it's, it's the followers of Jesus that are to have a deep and, and uh, profound longing for a just and godly world. We hunger and thirst for righteousness in this world. We want to see God's kingdom and righteousness reflected in the earth. And even if people don't want it, we know that it's the best thing for them. We want more for them than what they want for themselves. But I will tell you this as well, that when we look at this scripture, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, that it is far more than just wanting to see biblical justice in the world. That the heart of Jesus' statement, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I believe he is speaking first and foremost to an individual's ever-deepening, ongoing appetite for an experience of of, of personal righteousness, a righteousness that they don't possess in and of themselves but they have a longing, a yearning to become a more Christ-like person through the life-giving, soul-transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness within themselves. It is these people who shall be satisfied. Now, in order to understand how this works in our, in our sermon series and how it actually works with the first three what are called beatitudes, um, we need to back up and get a running start at the sermon one more time. So I'm going to read verses five, uh, 1 through 6 and, and unpack those as we go because really the first four beatitudes, I believe, work as a system. So here we go. It says here in Matthew 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, First, blessed are the poor in spirit. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. These are those individuals that have not a scrap of self 
superiority or self-righteousness. They know that what they need, they do not possess. And so they are spiritually and morally bankrupt. And because of that, that is poverty of spirit. And Jesus said that these are the ones, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And it's really a, a gateway beatitude that without this one, the others cannot come into being. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second one in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. And we looked at that another couple weeks ago and we discovered they're, they're, not, they're, they're so poor in spirit, so aware of their spiritual and moral deficiency that it actually crushes their spirit. They actually sit in sadness over it. Uh, last week, Pastor Tyler did an excellent job talking about the next one. Those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And if I could just boil it down, what I think I thought I heard last week is a humble and lowly person. That when God says you're in sin, they say, yes, sir. When others say that's sin, or I don't like you, or you're a bad person, meekness is that quality that says, yep, no contest. You got me. Guilty as charged. I got no prideful pushback. I have nothing to fight for. I'm poor in spirit. I'm mourning it myself. So when you say it about me, I've got nothing to fight back with or about. But here's the next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And here's how they all work together. In the midst of all this brokenness, all this neediness, all this sadness, and all of this meekness, and, and this humility, they are not people that just wallow in what is lost and what is lacking. They're actually hungering and thirsting for what they cannot have in and of themselves, but they want it. See, there must be a positive appetite, not just a looking around and saying, this is terrible, but it's true. That there's a positive appetite. There is desire. We must hunger and thirst for righteousness. Question, do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Because it is the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness that is blessed. Blessed. Makarios, to be supremely blessed. Or as we looked last week and Tyler pointed out, Jonathan Pennington worked 10 years to find a better understanding and came up with the word and the idea, flourishing. Flourishing. Same definition by Jonathan Pennington. Beatitudes are grace-based wisdom invitations to human flourishing in God's coming kingdom. You want to be blessed you want to flourish now and then. There must be a resident hungering and thirsting after the things of God. And according to Jesus, the person that is not self-satisfied, they know that where they need to be is someplace they've never been. That this is the person that is to be commended. This is the person to be envied. This is 
the person who is happy because they are flourishing? Are you hungering and thirsting, or are you comfy cozy? Satisfied with what you have attained to in your character, your knowledge, your personality, your works for the Lord and the kingdom of God, the, the, who you are in your character, are you satisfied? Or are you in hungering and thirsting for more? Here's the bottom line of our message today. So if you need a nap like I do, okay, I'm not going to fall asleep. That's why I'm on the platform, so I stay awake. But um, here's the bottom line, and I'm going to explain why, because it might, it might come out at left field uh, in, at first, but bottom line, my appetites and longings are not the problem. See, I was raised in a nation and a church culture that said, satisfy appetites physically, water and food. And I was raised in a church culture that said that, that desiring more and being hungry is bad. It's to be, you, the, the primary virtue is self-denial and self-mortification, but not according to Jesus. Look, my appetites and longings are not the problem. They're actually the key to my problem. How to flourish as a follower of Jesus. Like I said, I was taught a brand of Christianity that says, look to Jesus, be completely filled up to full and overflowing, and anything that you want, anything more, that's bad. You can't trust your heart and your feelings and your desires and your longings anyway. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, Isaiah 53. So you need to get rid of desire. You need to kill those things. You need to be more robotic. You know, if you're a Trekkie, you need to be more Vulcan. Use your brain. Use logic. Use theology. Your heart doesn't matter. You can't trust it. So just quash those desires and just do the next right thing, and that's all you got to do. Okay? And what we didn't know is we were actually being taught a subtle form of Buddhism. That is Buddhism. This is the journey of Siddhartha, who became the Buddha prophet. He experienced the enlightenment of nirvana. What is nirvana? It is uh, the, the ridding or elimination of the fires of all desires. So you just are, are just totally bland. The heart is destroyed. And so if you get a whole bunch of terrible and pain, hmm. If you get a whole bunch of good to be celebrated, hmm. You just don't care. And I'm telling you, that's Buddhism. That is not Bible. And that is not Jesus. It's Jesus that is commending a kind of, of ravenous appetite and saying that is a good thing, not a bad thing. Let me give you a couple examples. In John chapter 4, we have the account of the Samaritan woman. It's early on in the, the ministry of Jesus um, they travel through uh, a section of the, the world that is filled with people that are really despised by the Jews, and they also despise the Jews. They're the Samaritans. They're half Jewish, and they've got a perverted religion, and it's about noontime. His disciples go to find some lunch, and Jesus is left alone at a well, and a woman comes out in the middle of the day, and we discover in the text in John chapter 4, that she is a woman of ill repute. She has had five husbands. Five 
husbands, and the one she's living with now, she's not even married to. So it's not even now serial monogamy. Now it's just flat out shack up honey kind of scenario going on. Jesus already knows this because he knows everything, and he reveals that in the conversation. But it's so fascinating that instead of saying, hey, lady, you are really sexually immoral. You are really impure. Don't you know you are prostituting yourself to these men? Don't you know that you need to stop sinning? You need to stop with the temptation. You need to kill your sexual and relational desires. You need to stop that, woman. Instead of saying those things, Jesus asks for a drink of water. And she's stunned because a Jewish rabbi does not ask for a drink of water from a Samaritan female. And she goes, the well is deep. I'm shocked that you're asking me for this drink. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who you are? And Jesus says these words. And I'll read this from that text. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is playing upon the physical appetites and hungers and thirsts. He is leveraging those as a spiritual metaphor. She's stunned. She says, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Uh, Where do you get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus says to her, Whoever drinks of the water that I give him, whoever drinks, playing upon the appetites, but talking about spiritual things, whoever, whoever drinks of the water I give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus playing on the affections and desires in the appetites. A few months later, he is at the Feast of Booths, and we read about this in John chapter 7, and at the, the last day of the feast, here he goes again. He stands up and he says, everyone, kill your desire. Hey, everyone, kill your heart. Hey, everyone, stop wanting so many things. He doesn't say that at all. He actually says on the last day of the great feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts. And he didn't even say what they thirst for. He just says, you're a thirsty person. You're the kind of addict in this world. You can't control your impulses. Are you a thirsty person? Let him come to me and drink. You see, it's desire itself in all its forms that can be the thing that wakes us up from a spiritual slumber in a dead heart, in a cool spirit. We need to be awakened. Now you say, and this is a fair question, isn't it our desires that get us into trouble? And the answer is yes, we have to actually pay attention to, the, to all of the scriptures. And so it is in Genesis chapter 2 verse 6, Eve is in conversation with who we believe to be a fallen angel, a rebel. And he is tempting her and tricking her. And in the end of it, in Genesis 2 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she was hungry physically for this thing, and that it was delightful to the eyes. It looked nice. She wanted to hold it. 
And then it says it was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her. And then we read all the way at the other side of the scriptures. The brother of Jesus writes this in his epistle. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you murder. You covet. It's a very strong emotional desire You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Aren't desires themselves my problem? And my answer is this, it is not your desires. You are created by God and in his image with passions and longings and appetites and desires. You want some things because that's just who you are. So what is the problem? And this is our our first sub-point My appetites and longings are not the enemy. That is not the problem. It's my wayward and disoriented or disordered appetites for lesser things that are my enemy. What do you do when your appetites are for bad things? Things that Jesus says, no, do not pass, go, do not do that. And yet you are obsessed and you are consumed. And you continue to fall into those things. You're hungering and thirsting and you're putting the wrong thing and you can't seem to get out of that rut. What do you do with those wayward appetites for lesser things? And here's your answer. You mortify them. Mortify. That's a big word, isn't it, Fox Voice? Mortify. Can you say mortify? Mortify. You know what it means? Kill it. Kill. Ah! Mortify. This is what what the scripture says. This is the Apostle Paul, Colossians 3, 5. Put to death. Everything you can. We're going to study this later on in the Sermon on the Mount. You be radical with it. You drag it out and you kill it. And guess what? You're probably going to have to do it tomorrow or tonight and next week. You put it to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. You put it to death. But guess what? Sinful things are not the only kind of idolatry. Did you know you can take good things, things that you're going to want and should want, and those two can become bad things or wrong things? And it's what the... the, um, Puritans call disordered affections. So they might be good in and of themselves, but they're lesser things. But our hearts look to them as ultimate things. So not just sinful things, but lesser things as ultimate things. This too is idolatry. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit God, says, we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. You go, okay, that's Tim. Here's 
A. Craig Troxell in his book, With All Your Heart, he says, idolatry is taking a good thing and making it the best thing or the only thing. And guess what? We do it all the time. Um, Jeremiah the prophet, God said through him in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, my peoples have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Like we've already tasted of the very best thing. The ultimate thing, God himself. But we walk away from him all the time. Two evils left me the fountain of living waters. And here's the second evil. Hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that, cisterns that can hold no water. You know what a cistern is? Is a place that catches rainwater and holds it there for the dry season. When we could have an artesian well of soul-satisfying water, if only we would press into Christ. And yet the lesser things of life, even the good gifts that he gives us, become ultimate things. We go, I'm so happy that my sins are forgiven. I get to go to heaven when I die. But in this life, I'm looking for a little satisfaction. And for that, I need to do this other thing. Romance. Marriage, uh, perfect children, money, significance, notoriety, success, beauty, achievement, degrees, published articles, recognition. It can even be a large and growing church, online views, podcast downloads, anything that we think, well, we're serving the Lord in this. But yeah, but I sort of need it. I need it for me. I need, I need, I want, I want. And when I don't get it, I realize how much of an idol it has become to me. It can never take, and take the place of the fountain of living water himself. And so there we go. The very place that we need to remember to go to, we go, hey, hold on a second. And we go out in the, the woods, and we start to dig in the, the earth. We hit a few boulders, and we get out a pickaxe, and we start digging, and we get frustrated that we can't get to living water. But ah, finally we have a nice pit. We put our head in the hole, and we smell the musty, damp earth and said, oh, it sounds like success. It smells like life. I smell water in this hole, but there's... No living water in there. And the more we smell the moisture, the more we go berserk and dig in that same spot. And we're Christians in the 21st century with all the scriptures and all the truth. But we keep running after these broken things. These empty, broken cisterns are not going to satisfy. And good things of this life become bad things when they become ultimate things. So what do you do with, with evil desires? You what? Mortify. What do you do with these lesser things? When they become in our heart ultimate things. What do we do with that? We surrender them back to the good and wise heart of our creator. Can I tell you a quick story? It's the springtime of, of 19... 93, and I am flat out, head over heels, obsessed with this female named Stacy Longnecker. 
And man, because of, of where she's coming from and where I'm coming from, she is not easy to pursue. And I'm going out of my mind. I love Christ. I want Christ. I want to serve the Lord with my life. My life, And I desperately want her to come with me. But it's tearing me to pieces. And I'm in danger of a lesser thing becoming an ultimate thing. So I remember the time and the exact place I could walk you there if we had time to drive up to Papago Park, the archery range, right behind the, uh, the National Guard place. And I look over and there's a, a butte. There's a part of the Papago Buttes and it's shaped like a gorilla. I kid you not. In my mind's eye, it looks like the mascot for the Phoenix Suns, the Phoenix Gorilla squatting right there. And I said, say, Lord, every time I think of this moment or I see that rock, I'm going to remember this is where I surrendered my deep longing to make Stacy Longnecker an idol. And these words from Bono, you too, with or without her, with or without her, God, I will serve you. And I'll remember it, that rock. What was I doing? I was taking a lesser desire that was becoming an ultimate desire, and I was putting it on the altar, and I was surrendering it back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because I am so prone to take a good thing, but a lesser thing, and make it an ultimate thing, when there is only one ultimate thing, and that is Jesus Christ, his righteousness, and his kingdom. So, mortification, surrender, those are important, yes, but can I tell you, that is not the central message of the Christian faith. The central message of the Christian faith is not the mortification of evil desires or the mortification of idolatrous longings. It's not just mortification, but another fancy word that the Puritans used to, used to use, vivification. Kids, can you say vivification? Vivification. Yeah, vive, what does it mean? Yeah, you're listening to Coldplay, aren't you? Viva la vida. Live the life, life. It's not just mortification and putting to death bad things, but we must be awakened and alive to good things. And this is the final fill in the blank. If my appetites and longings are not awakened, they must be vivified. They must be made alive and reordered by Christ over time. I simply will not flourish as a follower of Jesus. It's not going to work. So if you were taught a religion of mortification, that that's the primary message. Kill it, kill it, kill it. Stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning. You're going to give up. You cannot do that for the rest of your life and live. You're going you're gonna to get weary and quit. There's going to be too much residual sin that you're going to get discouraged and you're just going to go, and it's a drudgery. I don't want just no, 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 not, not, not. Sin, sin, sin. Bad, bad, bad. Icky, bad, yucky, wrong. You cannot live there. We have to be focusing more than what's wrong and off. We need to focus on what is good and right. So James K.A. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, says discipleship is more about hungering and thirsting than knowing and believing. That we must be about hungering and thirsting. Uh, again, A. Craig Troxell, 
He says the goal is not to have weaker desires, but stronger desires. Namely, to have righteous desires surpass evil desires. Christianity is more about hungering and thirsting than self-denial. John Stott says it this way, I sometimes wonder if our slow growth in the Lord is because of our jaded appetites. And then perhaps you've heard this from C.S. Lewis, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. Listen once again to the language of Scripture. Uh, We're going to sing this in a moment. Psalm 42, verse 1 through 2, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then Psalm 63, verse 1, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is the aim of the follower of Jesus that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They long to be blessed. They long to be satisfied. So my appetites for the right thing must be awakened nurtured, fanned into flame. And if that does not happen, I will never have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I will grow weary and I will quit. Christianity and following Jesus will be a drag. I will not succeed without awakened and reordered appetites. Troxell says once again that this does not work antithetical to our thinking, into our mind, into our theology. In fact, our whole being argues for unity. But you just don't constantly go, yeah, but it's right. I don't care, I hate it, doesn't move me, but it's right. I would say if, if you get into that spot, do what's right. Please just do what's right. But please don't say that you're okay either. This is what he says. Our desires are inseparably related to what we know and what we choose. Our minds are tethered to the health of our desire. As Richard Sibbs observes, knowledge and affection mutually help one another. A mind working apart from the affections is not just undesirable, it is inhuman. Knowledge without passion will rarely prompt any action. So we must be awakened and vivified. From the heart for the right thing. So here's the big million dollar question today. What part do we play in that? How do we pursue this? What can we do? And really I could give you seven, eight, nine things. And there's more that we could blog on and any number of things. But can I just give you four really quickly. First off, if you go, you know what, I'm here. My mind tells me it's the right thing to do. It's my culture. That's a good thing. These are boundaries I've learned to live within, and I I don't want to go off the rails. Good, good, good. However, you want more. You want your heart to come alive. You want to follow and love God from your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What do you do? First off, be encouraged. Take heart. 
Jesus is already at work in you. I love this from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, in his thank you letter to the Philippians for being so generous to support him in the ministry and church planting. And he says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's already at work, and he's going to complete that good work. A few chapters later, or one chapter later, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Christ is already in you. He's already awakening desire. He is already reordering your longings, your affections, to be what he wants for you. So take heart, be encouraged. Here's the second thing. In any and all appetites or in any and all hungering and thirsting, even if they are sinful, take them to Jesus, the fountain of living water. I love this invitation. Isaiah 55, 1 through 2, come everyone who thirsts. He never qualifies that and says you're thirsting for the right thing. He just, you're just that addict that just needs the next hit. You need the next bump. You're hungering. You are a hungry soul. And more often than not, you're even jamming garbage in there to try to satisfy that hunger. Good news. Jesus loves the hungry. The hungry are the ones that find the living water because they know they're being driven by something rather than the Stoics, the Buddhists that kill desire. Come, everyone who thirsts, but come to the waters. And he was no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then here's how we know that it's even disordered and wayward desires. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? These are the hungry that are going to these things. And he goes, hold on. I watch this. I see what it's bringing you. You're the hungry. Bring it to me. And drink. He says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So no matter what you are hungering and thirsting after, even with shame and embarrassment, in that moment, say, dear Jesus, I want this, but I know it's you that I'm ultimately thirsting after. And come to Jesus with that. Here's the third thing. Did you ever think to pray for new and better appetites? <laughs> you go, I don't want good things. Ah, but do you want to want good things? This is the story of my life. I was born to want bad things. But somewhere in there, the Lord put this idea yeah, but you know it's the, the best course of action to really want the good thing. You don't want it, but you want to want it. How about you pray about it? Listen to the promises of Jesus. If you ask anything in my name, it will be done for you. I'm pretty sure that means according to his will, and I'm pretty sure good godly desires are according to his will. It's a prayer that Jesus promises to answer. Dear God, give me good and holy desires for good and right ultimate things. 
Jesus goes on to say, ask and seek and knock. It'll be given, it'll be opened, it'll be answered. He promises that a persistent person will be given the good thing. And then even in the Lord's Prayer, when, when we're taught to pray by Jesus, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver me from those appetites and hungers. And I believe that Jesus, based on his own promise, it is a prayer that he will 100% absolutely say yes to over time. So take heart. He's at work in any and all hungering. Come to Jesus. Pray for new and better appetites. And then here's, here we go. Last one. Practice the joy of delight. You do what you do. You press into him. Time alone, quiet time, prayer walks, time in the scriptures. Let the scriptures be your hunger and thirst. Pure milk of the word, Peter said. And you feast on the Lord and you delight and you, you join in singing corporately and then you go home, you listen to more worship music or pull out your, your guitar or your harpsichord or your accordion, olden days, if you got some polka in you. You sing to the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Engage in these things. <clears throat> it's Psalm 37 verse 4 that the psalmist David says, delight yourself in the Lord. And then what happens? He will give you the desires of your heart. Our job is to delight in him. And then watch to see how the appetites and affections are transformed from lesser things to ultimate things. Because it's those who have this hunger and thirst after righteousness that ultimately are filled. But those who are self-satisfied, full content, those who enjoy the smell of mud in their little broken cisterns that they've dug and want to keep chasing their tail in all the things that this world offers, inherit the wind. Those who look to their past accomplishments, past experiences, past spiritual development rather than future growth. Those who want more, however, those who hunger for more and thirst for more, that press on into intimacy with Jesus. Here's the promise, Psalm 36, verse 8. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Father, we humbly ask that you would remove wayward, misordered appetites and affections. Oh, dear God, in Jesus' name, please make us to have ravenous appetites, to hunger and thirst passionately for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. For intimacy with Christ himself. Lord God, thank you for the promise of living water. Food that, that genuinely satisfies bread and milk and wine and fine cuts of well-aged beef, your word says. That we would feast on the abundance of your goodness and be fed from the river of your delights. We're holding fast to this. We're asking for it. And if you agree with that, say amen. 
Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.